Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that it makes sense in the investigation of any topic to begin at the beginning. In order to find out what Jesus taught as the Christian faith, it would be reasonable to begin at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we find that Jesus introduced the gospel by saying that we were to repent and believe in the gospel about the kingdom. The kingdom is the center of Jesus' message. It's the heart of the saving gospel. Jesus spoke of that gospel being sown in the hearts of men and women, as we find in the famous parable of the soils or the seed in Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Mark chapter 4. Now, the kingdom of God was not the nebulous idea, which it often is in the minds of people today. The kingdom of God had a definite shape to it, a definite and precise meaning. It meant that great event of the future by which the kingdoms of this world, of this present evil system, would be transferred to the power of Jesus as God's Messiah. We read of that in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 and 18. It's at the time of the blowing of the seventh trumpet by the angel in the future, and only at that time that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God. They are not the kingdom of God now. The present evil governments of our system, dominated by Satan, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, are not the kingdom of God. Our loyalty to present systems and governments should be provisional. We are to be citizens of the coming kingdom. We are to be aliens in a foreign world. Abraham was a sojourner in the land which actually belonged to him. He never owned a square foot of the land of Canaan, according to Acts 7 verse 5, and yet God promised to give it to him and to his offspring forever. Now that promise of the land comes into the New Testament as the promise of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, they are going to inherit the kingdom or the earth the earth renewed and purified. That's the reward of the faithful, and it's based on the promise made to Abraham, that great oath-bound, covenanted promise made to Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 13, chapter 15, and chapter 17, particularly verse 8, where the land is promised in perpetuity to Abraham and his descendants. In Galatians 3.29, Paul made a most significant statement in regard to our status as Christians, if you are Abraham's seed, Paul said, then you are heirs of the kingdom, heirs of the promise made to Abraham. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the promise, of course, was well known. It was the promise of the land made to Abraham. Abraham was promised that he would be heir of the world. Romans 4 verse 13. Combining Romans 4.13 and Galatians 3.29, we find that Christians become heirs to the great promises made to Abraham and to the nation of Israel. Now, does that mean that the church has superseded Israel permanently? Well, not for one moment. It's true that the church is now the Israel of God, God's chosen people, God's circumcision, as we read in Philippians 3 verse 3. It's true that the spiritual Israel of the church lives alongside and contemporary with the Israel of the flesh, 
that's to say the unconverted Jew, but that does not mean that the unconverted nation of Israel, now presently residing in Palestine, has been superseded forever. According to Romans 11, there's going to be a national collective conversion of a remnant of ethnic national Israel consequent upon the second coming and the tribulation which precedes it. Now, there's a future for Israel in the Bible, certainly, but for the moment the church is heir to the promises made to Israel. That's plainly stated in passage after passage in the New Testament where texts which apply to Israel are applied directly to the church. Galatians 3.29 says it plainly, if we belong to Christ, if we're Christians, then it doesn't matter whether we're Jews or Gentiles, we are heirs of the promise made to Abraham, heirs of God, as Paul said in Romans 8. Romans 4 verse 13 plainly defines what Paul meant by the promise. The promise made to Abraham was that he would be heir of the world. It was made to Abraham and his seed. And if you're a Christian, then you become the seed of Abraham and heir of the promise. And so as a child of Abraham, as one grafted into the olive tree of Israel, you become an heir to the very same promise as was made to Abraham in the great covenant of land given him by divine oath. Christians, therefore, are heirs to the land or the earth, the land of Israel, which will be the center of world government in the kingdom. That kingdom will have its headquarters in Jerusalem and its authority and influence will extend to the far reaches of the earth. Ask of me, God said to the Messiah in prophecy in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will give you the inheritance of the nations and the ultimate parts of the earth as your inheritance. That's worldwide government and worldwide dominion promised to the Messiah and to the faithful in Psalm 2. Jesus quoted that Psalm 2 in his promises made to the church in Revelation 2 verse 26 and 321. Jesus extended those messianic promises of dominion, of world dominion, to the church. According to the messianic promises made in Psalm 2, the Messiah is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. A severe form of discipline will be required to change the hearts of men and to make them malleable and softened so that they can respond to the sweet spirit of God. Jesus extended that privilege of rulership over the nations to his own followers. Revelation 3 verse 21 says that I will give the Christians, my followers, authority over the nations. But let it be carefully noted that that authority over the nations is not granted this side of the kingdom of God. That's to say Christians have no power to take over the reins of government this side of the arrival of Jesus to establish the kingdom. At the present time, Christians dwelling in different nations should respect the authority of the government, should obey the government, insofar as that government does not command a Christian to do something which Jesus forbids. Christians should pay taxes, and they should respect the authority vested in the state. This does not, however, mean that they should consider themselves citizens of these present world systems. The Bible takes a very pessimistic view of world national systems. Satan is said to be the god of this age. Paul in Galatians 1 verse 4 says that we're living in the present evil age. And Paul actually envisaged things getting worse progressively before the kingdom of God finally intervened 
to change the state of affairs on the earth forever and decisively. We're praying thy kingdom come, and so it's futile to imagine that the kingdom has already come. You don't pray for the kingdom to come if it has already come. Now certainly something of that future kingdom can be tasted by receiving the Spirit of God as a down payment, as a foretaste and a guarantee of a future measure of the Spirit far in excess of what we have now. But the kingdom of God is present only in the sense that the spirit of that kingdom can be enjoyed now, and something of the lifestyle of that kingdom should be demonstrated in Christian circles. There should be love, there should be peace and harmony amongst Christians as they gather around the word in a Berean manner, examining it daily to see if what they hear by way of preaching and instruction is true. In Acts 17.11, the Berean people near to Thessalonica, where Paul was preaching, were commended because they searched and examined the Scriptures daily to see if what they were hearing was true. And for that reason, Luke says, many of them became true believers. Christians today need to get back to the Word. The power of the Spirit is invested in that Word. The words of the Bible are not just dead words on a page. They're the living words, the creative words of God, and they're encapsulated and summarized in the word or message or gospel about the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, verse 19, likens that message of the kingdom to a seed, to a creative seed which sparks the new life, the regeneration, the rebirth, which every believer must experience if he's going to gain immortality at the second coming, in the resurrection when Jesus returns to this earth to initiate and inaugurate the kingdom of God. This, of course, is the promise not only made to Abraham, but confirmed by the prophets of Israel that the Messiah will indeed rule the world with peace from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will become a great world headquarters. All the nations will gather to it to worship God and to be instructed in ways of living which will produce the very peace which we now seek for in vain. At that time, the great nations of Egypt and Iraq and Iran and Israel will live in harmony. At present, there's a tremendous amount of tension and hostility in the Middle East. All of that will come to an end when Jesus, arriving in power and glory, will pour out his Spirit upon those people who repent and turn to him and beg for forgiveness and mercy. The Messiah in his graciousness will forgive them, will allow them to survive into the kingdom of God as mortals, to come under the supervising government of the immortal Christians, immortalized at that time by the resurrection, and prepared at that time only to rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom of God. Such in brief is the simple scheme laid out by the New Testament and by Jesus himself. The gospel in the New Testament begins with belief in the coming kingdom of God, and of course in Jesus as the Messiah, the king of that kingdom. Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 20, verse 25, and Acts 28, verses 23 and 31, clearly demonstrate to any unprejudiced reader that the gospel of the kingdom continued to be at the center of apostolic witness. Now, rejection of Jesus' gospel, and we note that Satan has his pseudo-Jesus and his pseudo-gospel, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 4, 14, and 15. Rejection of Jesus' gospel does not lead to the desired result, but to tragic disappointment. Jesus warned his colleagues and his contemporaries 
who opposed him, that when they saw Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the future kingdom and themselves being cast out, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Luke 13, verse 28. Those are the words of the unique Son of God who spoke with the full authority of his Father and who invites you and me through belief in his atoning death and his resurrection and in his gospel of the kingdom to share rulership with him when he comes to reign upon the earth. Revelation 5, verse 10. In the gospel message of the kingdom, Jesus, on behalf of his Father, invites you to be a king, or should I say a king or a queen, quite literally. You may never have thought of yourself as an administrator in a world government, but God's intention is to honor you in this way, and it's plainly declared in the Bible. As a disciple of Jesus, we are entitled to know what purpose there is in following him, often through trial and tribulation. Jesus promises you, as he did Peter and his church as a whole, I tell you truly, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me shall also sit on twelve thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew 19, 27 and 28. Jesus expanded that promise to the church as a whole. He said this in Revelation 3, verse 21, and Revelation 2, verse 26, to the conqueror, I will give the privilege of sitting beside me on my throne. I will give him authority over the nations. Those are the words of Jesus Christ himself. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom and join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.